I never felt like I was a black person until I came to the United States of America, right? You grow up in a place where everyone looks like you, uh, whether they are achieving in your eyes or not achieving. And by that, I mean, if they're the president, they look like you. If they're a homeless person on the street, they look like you. So you don't have this concept that your race really has anything to do with where you end up in life, right? It's how hard you work and it's, you know, perhaps connections, family ties, all these things. The United States was the first place where I became keenly aware of my blackness. Um, and it was a strange feeling, you know, it's a strange feeling, especially as a kid. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another interesting story to add to our immigrant human library. It's that of Aisha Lee. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation we're going to have today. I am too. Thank you for giving us a part of your day and joining us on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you don't mind, Aisha, telling us a bit about your personal, professional background and just filling us in about who's Aisha. Aisha, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. No, no, no. Aisha. Aisha. I always tell people it's like your eyeball and then shot Aisha. They said a little bit easier. And then on the Zoom calls, I put the little phonetics there to help people along. Uh, so a little bit about myself. Where do I start? Um, so I'm originally from West Africa. I'm from Senegal. I came here in my preteen years, turned uh, 10 years old here in the United States. And uh, before that, I was born in Gabon in Central Africa. And so my story takes me to three different countries, Gabon, Senegal, and then the United States of America. Professionally, I am a strategic insights leader in the tech industry. I work for a company called Open Signal, the leading global provider of independent market performance and data networking insights. Um, and I also am the proud owner and CEO of Start in the Beginning, short SITBI, which is a communications consultant firm. So we help ambitious professionals and entrepreneurs through the power of their own stories, reveal who they truly are, what their value is, and most importantly, how to communicate that value. So we help out with speaking and messaging and presence and helping people to really tap into the power of who they are uh, and translate that to how they speak. Very good. Very interesting. I think our audience will find this, what you do to be very valuable. So I hope uh, anybody listening, feel free to reach out to Aisha. We'll share her details at the end for you to get in touch with her. So you've shared with us a bit about where you were from. Is there a, a story behind what brings you to the United States? And um, if you're able to tell us a bit more? Yes, absolutely. So much like I think many other immigrant stories, it starts with my mother first and foremost. Um, of course, you know, by the grace of God, and, and that is what is probably should be first and foremost, right? And is first and foremost for me. But um, he transferred a lot of blessings through her and her hard work. And so I think our immigration story starts in Senegal, where she left me and my six, my five older siblings. I'm the youngest of six. 
back in Senegal and she came to the United States on her own in search of a better life and to find a way to provide for us from 4,000 miles away. And while in the United States, she did every job imaginable that you could think of that was within the dignity of her values, house cleaning, working in factories, CNA, under the table, over the table. I mean, she did everything that she could. And uh, it took her three years, three years to get us to the United States. And it took her three years because she didn't want to separate us. You know, there were six of us. We came from Gabon. So we were already foreigners in our own land because we're Senegalese nationals. But the backstory there is that my grandfather was the Senegalese ambassador to Gabon. So that's how we were. I was born in Gabon, but I was a foreigner in my own country in Senegal um, for about three to four years. And so, again, through her hard work, her perseverance, her modeling of what the ultimate sacrifice looks like, you know, and this is all happening in her 30s, by the way, like we're, we're in our 30s, we're, we're, you know, having kids, we're enjoying our children at home, if we've been blessed enough to have those experiences, but she spent that entire time away from her kids and working for her kids. Um, and so it was a cold, cold winter in 1999, when we finally touched down in the United States, but that was a hard hard three to four years just being away from my mom at that young age luckily you know surrounded by the love of my grandmother and and you know cousins and siblings but that separation I think is really a defining moment for me in my life very good so everybody came over and thus begin the journey thus begin wow the yes Yes. So I wonder what, what is life like? I've never been to Gabon and I've passed through Senegal through the airport and it's find it very intriguing, the culture and the whole conversation around who has the best, uh, <laughs> Jollof rice? <laughs> rice and is it from Senegal or is it from Nigeria? Listen, what is life like in this hey, part of the world? Before I go there for your beautiful audience, I need to set the record straight. Uh, so <clears throat> there is no debate about this. And anyone who debates it is 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 it's not based in reality. I'm sorry. Jollof rice originates from Senegal, from the land of Jollof and the people of Jollof. <laughs> in fact, in Senegal, we speak the most predominant language is Wolof, right? So clearly, clearly we have the original job. Now you can debate about who has the best. For me, it's not a debate. Obviously, Senegalese Wolof rice is the absolute best. But, you know, let let live. Let people live. Let people have their own opinions. But we're not going to have a debate about the origins of jollof rice. Um, and if you're in my home, we're not going to have a debate about the best jollof rice. <laughs> but shout out to my Nigerians and my Ghanaians. I love you so much. <laughs> Right, right. I know that friendly rivalry goes on. I hear it all the time. So, but what was life like, if you can remember, and have you gone back, Lena? What culture? Do you remember Gabon, or you're in your world? It's all Senegal. It's mostly Senegal, right? So, what I remember about Gabon is how closely knit our community was. So we had a very small Senegalese community in Gabon. Uh, and we were we lived a relatively insular life, right? We were the, the grandchildren of an ambassador. So we sort of lived all in one compound. Uh, but I distinctly remember, you know, growing, growing up there, I went to Catholic school my first couple of years, right? Which is very uncommon for a Muslim family to send their child to a Catholic school. But um, my mother believed 
in more than anything, the power of education. And she was going to send me wherever she thought I was going to get the best education that happened to be a Catholic school. Um, my mother is also one of the most open uh, minded and loving people. She truly embodies what it means to be tolerant. And so through osmosis, I sort of gained that. The first few years of my life, I was, um, you know, immersed in a in a completely different faith. So I grew so much appreciation and love for the sister faiths. And that carries through every, every facet of my life today. Um, but I remember going to school there really young, you know, we all wore uniforms when we went to school and we all sang like the hymns in French. Uh, so Gabon is a predominantly French speaking country, a former French colony. I also remember the food was amazing. Um, I never got to speak any of the traditional Gabon Gabonese languages. So my memories of Gabon are somewhat limited. Senegal though, um, are where sort of my most formative years were spent. I'll, I'll typify Senegal in two words. The first one is hospitality. We are quite literally known for teranga, which is the Wolof word for, for hospitality. And if you go to Senegal, it is a shameful experience if people don't feed you until you are, you know, near just like explosion. <laughs> if people don't take care of you and bring you into their home and treat you like their own. Um, so hospitality is a big factor for us. And uh, the second one is the power of the greeting. That's one thing that was so different when I came to the United States. In Senegal, when you walk down the streets, everybody says hello. You know, and we say it in the Arabic, salamu alaikum, salamu alaikum. And, you know, you say salamu alaikum to you blue in the face, but it's part of the, the culture. And, but, you know, what does that translate to? It's this like the acknowledgement of a human connection. And when I came to the U.S., it was so odd to me that people would just walk right by each other and never acknowledge one another. It's really, really strange. So there's so much more I could share about the vibrancy of our clothes, our fashion, our music. But I think the heart of our culture is in hospitality and truly valuing other human beings just because they exist in your in your ether. And I wonder, was there a, a community from Gabon or Senegal when you guys first moved with you and your family? How was that? If there was one, did that facilitate like a, a smoother transition for you? Barely. I'd say barely. So uh, my mom came in 96. Uh, she came and she temporarily stayed with a Senegalese family for a very short period of time. Um, and by the time we came around, the community was growing a little bit, but not by much. So we had not created any kind of support ecosystem just yet. And um, there was some concentration in Rhode Island where we immigrated to. And then there was some concentration in like Atlanta, Georgia, but really we were kind of scattered a bit. Some concentration in Las Vegas randomly and New York certainly, but no. So to answer your question, it's very small if if any at all support system that existed amongst our community but there were and other communities that helped us other community okay so now i'm gonna i'm wondering you know so what was it like in your first years first few years your first year first few years you know what facilitated you getting into school you guys just getting started first few years were rough for a few reasons. Number one, winter. Winter is was just, to this day, every winter in Rhode Island, I threatened to pack up my bags and go back to Africa. 
<laughs> every single winter. Um, so winter was rough and we came in the dead of winter. This is silly, but my very first disappointment in the United States was it, um, there was snowfall maybe like four or five nights after we came out. So excited because growing up, I'd watch the cartoons and, you know, can you, can you describe to me what snowfalls looks like in the cartoons? You're seriously asking me? I'm asking, yeah. Like when you think oh, of in the cartoons, kind of fluffy and almost cloudy looking, mm-hmm. fun, the kids playing and it's very light. Yes. Right, kind yeah. of. False advertising, I tell you. <laughs> I looked outside and it was like these rinky dinky little things. I, I was expecting cotton balls out of the sky. Okay. <laughs> Growing up in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was like, this is it, you know? So that was my first, you know, put yourself in the mind of like someone who's about to turn 10 years old. That was my first real disappointment. Ah, that was nothing compared to when I started school. When I started school and I realized that, Little, very expressive me could not express themselves. No one understood what I was saying. So you're at the height of childhood. You want to play, you want to make connections. And I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to connect because I didn't speak the language. So uh, the first few years were really hard. So the most difficult part was acclimating, assimilating, trying to find the right words, if I could even conjure up the words in English. And, you know, you imagine being 10 years old at sort of the prime of wanting to play and make relationships and get along with other kids. And, you know, I just sort of sat on on the bus and looked forward and said, I don't understand. And, you know, you, you get the sense, like, are they picking on me? Are they talking about me? And you just don't know. So it's just this overwhelming sense of loneliness and alienation, um, until I watched the movie, I forget, I think it's called Oliver Friends, Oliver and Friends, it's a Disney movie. And um, the dog in the movie asks, I think another dog, you know, will you be my best friend? And they become friends. And I remember being able to like translate that. I said, okay, if I want to have friends, I'll just ask someone, will you be my best friend? Not really knowing, you know, how deep, how deep of a question that is. So anyways, I met a young girl, young African-American girl, and I just asked her, you know, will you be my best friend? And she just kind of like cocked her head and looked at me and she said, okay, you know, and that was the first friend that I had ever made. Um, but I share that story because I think that not having the words is something that is so alienating when you first move to the United States, especially if you don't come from an English speaking country, right? Com- coming from a Francophone country and, um, you know, while the school had English as a second language and those types of things for our young immigrant kids that come to this country or even for older immigrants, obviously, it's it's so good to be aware and sensitive to how lonely and alienating that feeling is. You know, I was a kid, luckily. And so, you know, I had a little bit more friendlies around me. But imagine trying to navigate that in the workplace and all the judgments that come and all the fear and anxiety that comes with that. Um, so some difficulty, but there was also some really fun, fun things about moving here in the United States too. Yes. So what are they? Share with us. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> a couple of things. Something? I think the first one was, you know, this is going to sound again so silly, but we're talking about the immigrant experiences. I'm going to share a very silly one. Buffets were unheard of to me. I said, wait a minute. They have these places where you can just pay one price and eat as much food as you want to eat. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> this would never work in West Africa. You'd never get people to leave. 
<laughs> um, so buffets were like pretty wild to me. Uh, we quite enjoyed those when we first moved to the United States. But on a more serious note, I think the fact that the U.S. is such a melting pot of different cultures was also something else that hit pretty hard. Because as I mentioned before, we had a very small Senegalese community, so not a ton of support could be given. Not that support wasn't given, but we just didn't have much to give. But the support we did have when we first moved to the United States was from a French Canadian family, the Bartholomews. And these people helped my mom learn English. They helped us learn English. There were also the Bodians and the Ogers, all French Canadians, because we moved to Woonsocket, a predominantly French Canadian old mill town. And so all these folks um, who were raised, you know, um, Catholics, we bonded really closely and we became family. And in fact, Thanksgivings are still at the Bartholomew's every wow. single year, you know? And so we built these beautiful, strong relationships. The Bartholomew granddaughter was a bridesmaid at my wedding, you know, and um, we just recently celebrated her, you know, one-year-old's birthday party. And so America has this tremendous capacity for bringing people together who normally would never mix in a walk of life and making them your family. So that's another beautiful hallmark of the beginning of our story here too. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's usually people on the ground that you meet who just kind of hold your hand. I've heard that over and over. Some of them strangers, right? Because how did you all know these people? Was it yeah. a referral or your mom just connected through some social network? That's, that's a great question. Yeah. So um, a social network. So there was the uh, archdiocese of the city of Providence here. And through that organization, she met a nun, a nun who just volunteered her, her time to helping new immigrants acclimate. And she became really good friends with Sister Colette Auger. And Sister Colette would give her a ride to work. And, um, you know, again, the French Canadian community is pretty small in one socket. So Sister Colette knew this woman named Sylvia who owned, uh, not owned, but who um, helped to manage the genealogy society. And so here were a bunch of French Canadians who were trying to reconnect to their French roots. And part of that was learning the French language. And so Sister Colette connected Sylvia Bartholomew to my mother because my mother was able to, uh, would be able to help teach her French. And yeah, that's how that vice French versa. Yeah, exactly. And so I talked about language being something that could be so alienating, but it could also be this tremendous connector uh, because they did not start a relationship thinking they would be family 20 some odd years later. They just, you know, one needed money and the other one needed to learn French. And from wow. that, born a, a beautiful, beautiful relationship. Thanks for sharing that. And I hope others who are listening, it's an idea of a possibility for you. If you are new, considering coming over with no connections, you know, churches, other social groups might have setups like this where you could partner with someone who needs to learn your language. Okay. You need to learn English and you guys can work it out together. So That's a little right. nugget there for you through the conversation. Yeah. And and one thing I want to add is what helped facilitate that was openness and true love for just other human beings. Because as I told you, my mother sent me to a Catholic school. Had she not had that heart to be open, she may have not gone to the Archdiocese of Providence, a Catholic 
organization to seek help. Had Sister Collect, a Catholic nun, not had had openness in her heart, she may not have helped a Muslim woman and connected her to another. I mean, so all of these things are, there are the resources, but you also have to have the openness and the heart to not just extend help, but ask for help from people who may not look or sound like you or practice the same faith as you or whatever those other kind of worldly divisions may be. Right. Another very important highlight of the immigrant experience, right? When you're placed in, finding yourself in a new space, a new country, connecting and reaching out for help to perfect strangers or, you know, and just hoping that things will work out for you. So a great example here from Aisha. So I wonder then, Aisha, has things moved on with you? You're the youngest one. Everybody's growing up. What were some aspirations that you guys had for your family? Like, you know, was there an American dream? What was it? What, you know, did your mom ever share any hopes that she had for her children? Mm. Oh, man, that's an excellent question. I think not in so many words as an American dream, but if there's anything that I can liken to it, my mother was very focused on take the good from whatever culture you're interacting with. There's a lot of beautiful things about our culture, but maybe there are some things that we can learn to evolve away from, right? Maybe there are superstitions and other limiting beliefs that don't necessarily serve you if you're trying to, you know, ascend in life economically specifically. Um, and one of the things that was really important for her was education, 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 you know, go to school, you have one job, you don't have to pay any bills, you don't have to work around here, you have one job, and it's to go to school, do well and elevate yourself. And so we focus really keenly on elevate on, on elevating ourselves through the power of education and doing well in school. Um, and so that became sort of how I could make her proud, right, at an early age. And so I focused on that all the way through graduating the college. But our dream was really simple, I think. It was to ascend, take the good that we could find here in the United States, but keep all of the things that made us us, all of the things that were authentic to our culture. I mentioned the hospitality. I mentioned the valuing of other human beings by simply acknowledging them with a greeting. That's where it starts. Of course, it's not where it stops. But she always wanted us to be who we are and see the pride and the power in our identity, but always look to evolve, right? So I think her American dream was in the house with the picket fence. It was the evolution of her children to be the apex of who they could be, right? By embracing who they were, but also giving themselves room to evolve into who they could be. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. And where, well, I, all I know is the U.S., but I think a lot of people abroad have that perspective. And a lot of us can attest to the fact that when you come to the U.S., the possibility of that is like unlike no other place that I know of, right? Because while some countries may have that aspirations for their citizens, Sometimes the resources or the market environment or the rule of law are not in place to facilitate some of this coming to life. And so many people have been able to come to the U.S. and, you know, aim for the skies, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for her, it was, you know, 
doubly complex because she did come under asylum status. Uh, and so there was just so much complexity just around understanding the system in general, right? How do you get your papers? And so that's where sort of the power of the friendship she had with some of these French Canadian uh, families, the Baudouins and the, the Bartholomews and the Augers really came in and many others I should mention, really stepped in to help her navigate, right? English being a barrier to begin with, she could speak it, but written was a little bit challenging for her. Um, and so being able to find resources, people who will just extend a helping hand to help you wade through all that, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why my very first internship when I was in college was at the uh, what is now called the Dorcas International Institute of Rhode Island, where precisely that's what they do is help immigrants figure out the entire kind of immigration landscape, what paperwork you need to do, how much you got to pay for it, you know, get ready for their tests, all of these things that are just I mean, it, it's it's unimaginable just trying to figure out how to put food on the table for your family. And then on top of that, <laughs> all the things you got to do for immigration, like it's uh, it's it's pretty daunting for a lot of people. Yes. And on top of that, to learn English, too, that's an, an another layer, too. So, yeah. oh, my gosh, kudos to you guys. And, and, and great that you all were younger with the mental muscles that could take that rigor that was needed to maintain your French, hopefully, and also to then learn English and the culture and make those adjustments that you needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's kind. Um, so I'm wondering what opportunities Aisha came along um, outside of being helped by this these few families and uh, archdiocese and, and so forth. What opportunities came along your path, your siblings, moms, to help you all get to be the persons that you are today? It could be scholarships. It could be work opportunities, whatever nuggets that might be helpful for other people who are listening in. Yeah. Uh, I would say, honestly, we went through just the very traditional route of, you know, you graduate from high school, you get a job. I mean, we were working while we were in high school. Um, I started working when I was 14 years old because, you know, you have no choice. You have to bring money in um, to the house. You try to not be too much of a burden on your mom who's already worked so hard to, to get you here. So I think that's part of the sort of immigrant stories. We learn grit and resilience at a very early age. But as far as additional resources, you know, I wish that I could think of many others or places that I tapped into. Um, I mean, obviously there's the power of just networking. There are very few jobs that I've ever gotten where I was not referred there by somebody else, whether it's someone within my community when I started way back when, and I, you know, didn't really have very many outlets being young. And I was a CNA for a short period of time. I worked in group homes for some time. I worked in retail settings. But one thing that I would definitely say is if you're looking to ascend, whether it's in a professional career, get any job that forces you to communicate and interface with other people, right? That is one of the things that, you know, a lot of us in the West African community, we come and we, you know, work either in a factory or uh, sometimes you work in CNAs. Those don't necessarily give you the opportunity to broaden your vocabulary and force you to really communicate with people. I was really blessed to be put on a path where I ended up working in retail settings, where every day you're talking with people, you're 
you know, you're not a salesperson, but you're selling them on the products in the stores and the sales that are there. And you're asking them to, I'm sure you've been asked, right? Like, do you want to sign up for a credit card? You're, you're learning powers of persuasion. And that's one of the things that my nieces and nephews are first generation American. They were born here. And I'm trying to steer them to those types of paths because there's just tremendous power in being able to not just master this language, but have powers of, of persuasion and being able to learn how to be succinct and storytell um, and just learn like the unspoken rules, as you like to say, right, of American culture and interactions. So um, again, unfortunately, there's no specific resource I can point to, but if someone is looking, right, immerse yourself in any type of a role where you're forced to regularly interact with other people. And I think it helps tremendously create a base. Yes, good advice, good advice. So I'm wondering, aside from the language and the cold winter, (laughs) were there any other challenges or is there like a big challenge that just really bent you out of shape over the years? Like, man, I just can't figure this out about the American culture or just, and how how was that for you? Yeah, there are two that I can think of and they're somewhat related. So the first one is uh, that I, and I share this once in a while, I never felt like I was a black person until I came to the United States of America, right? You grow up in a place where everyone looks like you, uh, whether they are achieving in your eyes or not achieving. And by that, I mean, if they're the president, they look like you. If they're a homeless person on the street, they look like you. So you don't have this concept that your race really has anything to do with where you end up in life, right? It's how hard you work and it's, you know, perhaps connections, family ties, all these things. The United States was the first place where I became keenly aware of my blackness. Um, And it was a strange feeling, you know, it's a strange feeling, especially as a kid, um, because I came and I didn't have a concept of like division. I just thought I could be friends with everybody. Um, But what was strange is very quickly, I found myself alienated from mostly everyone, right? Oddly enough, the people who seemed to embrace me the most were like, these little like white girls and white boys. And maybe it was because I was exotic and different. I don't know, you know, what it was. Um, But I found myself shocked that I was not more embraced by people who looked like me. Um, And that was a bit of a rude awakening because I didn't understand why. And as I got older, it really vexed me throughout my middle school years Mm -hmm. and some of my high school years until I found the language to just ask, you know, and have conversations with some of the ones who I was friends with, some of the, like, when I say ones, I mean Black Americans I was friends with. And they started explaining, and again, as much as a 15-year-old can explain to you, like, well, I just feel like, you know, sometimes Africans, they're really uppity when they come here. You know, they act like they're better than everybody. All of these things. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is all news to me. I didn't know this. And it's like, well, you know, the way you guys talk and, you you know, you guys are all like proper and, you know, you talk like a white girl. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, all these like revelation upon revelation that goes so deep beneath the layers of how we look at each other, particularly within the African diaspora was so mind blowing. And 
it led me to take Africana studies when I was in college because I wanted to dig into that. Like, what are these differences and these separations that we've created within the African diaspora? So that was a big one, a big, big, big one. It was just navigating the complexity of like identity as a black person that wasn't black American, that was continental African American. And by the way, all these labels, right? Like, I'm African-American, but I'm not. I'm actually continental African-American. I started using that term to describe myself. Wow, that's a new one. But I get it. I get it. All these things. Yeah, all these things. Um, And I think the second one was just, you never feel enough of anything. Mm. You know, you're not Black enough. You're not African enough. You're not. And I trudged through all of these. uh, It reached an apex when I was about, 14. And for me, that was sophomore year of high school because I um, was a little bit more advanced in school due to testing, not because I'm just amazing and smart. I just tested at a higher grade level. But I went to my mom and I just, I sobbed one day. I just didn't get it. I was crying. Mm. Like, I don't get, I don't know where I belong. You know, like I'm this Muslim, devout Muslim girl who you threw in Catholic school. I'm, you know, black, but not black enough for these people. And I'm too white for these people. And definitely I'm not white, nor am I trying to be white, but it's just confusing, you know? Um, And she just looked at me and she said, you're my daughter. That's all you need to know. You're my daughter, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was probably in that moment the least helpful thing she could have said because that was not revelatory at all (laughs) but it's causing me to tear up like that hit me at a very soft place like um (laughs) wow she's something else but you know I I try to that's why I use humor as a defense mechanism because it does make me emotional as well but you know, I had to, I had to caveat that with at the time I was like, this is not helpful. What are you, you're not helping me at all. This is not descriptive, but looking back at it is quite literally the most profound thing that she could have said is just, you're my daughter. Just take, take of me what you think is good and beautiful and be that as simple Mm -hmm. as that, you know? Um, And it wasn't until many, many, many years later that I was like, okay, yes, by that, the things that I think are beautiful are that she is beyond proud to be the color of skin she is. She is beyond proud to be of the faith that she is. And most importantly, she's beyond proud to be a person that is loving, inclusive, open, and absolutely herself in whatever room she walks into, you know? Um, and that's who I am. That's who I am. Um, and so coming to grips with that is difficult. But once you do, life becomes a lot brighter. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world, and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe, and share with your friends, family, and circle of influence.